Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. There was a level that I lived at for a long time and I became comfortable in, which was just, I don't feel great. I don't look forward to doing much, but I can get out of bed. I can go to work. I can make the meetings. I can make the flights and I can talk on stage and nobody would know that I was, I was sick. And medicine and electroconvulsive therapy got me to that level again because I was far below that. And that got me to that level again where adding exercise and therapy and 15 other things got me to a level where I'm, I'm not just getting by and, and making a living, but I'm, I'm thriving and I've never been happier or more accepting of myself and, and had more energy to do things beyond just get to the show. That was Gary Goleman. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fracoso, and today on the podcast is Gary Goleman. Um, he is a six foot six comedian who was born and raised in Peabody, Massachusetts. Currently works and hails out of New York City, and uh, is a very, very uh, funny comedian. I-, I say that at the top because uh, the conversation you're about to hear, it's not that funny. I'm going to be honest with you, it's not that funny. Um, but what is funny is Gary's new special, uh, which just dropped on HBO last week. It's called The Great Depression, and uh, I want to play a clip from that now. 
I have taken antidepressants on and on <laughs> for 30 years. And because of the nature of antidepressants, sometimes they don't work and you have to try something else. Sometimes they work and then they stop working and you have to try something else. Sometimes they work, but they're not good enough. You need to augment them with something. So over the years, I have tried Pamelor, Nortriptyline, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, Paxil, Abilify, Adderall, Ativan, Clonopin, Duloxetine, Mirtazapine, Sertraline, Apexa, Selexa, Zyprexa. At one point, my doctor said, let's just try drugs that rhyme. Thank you, Dr. Seuss. I just want to say that uh, Gary uh, is literally a towering presence. I don't know why I can't get past his height. I think I get uncomfortable when guests are taller than me, which um, only now saying it out loud, I realize it's definitely a more deep-seated issue that I got to work out. Until then, um, I want to say a couple things about Gary. What struck me about his comedy is the generosity and warmth of it. He has these kind of keen insights about behavior, the, the idiosyncrasies uh, that you and I probably share. Moreover, uh, Gary has taken his depression, which has a tendency to be uh, all-consuming, lingering from day to day, and he's turned it into something funny and human. He was paralyzed. I mean, this is a man who hit rock bottom, and uh, many of us, maybe someone you know, uh, would have stayed there. Not because they wanted to, but because they believed they had no other options. That there was no choice involved, and that this sadness, this kind of unending sadness, was predestined by some power neither you nor I understand. I don't think depression is the same for everyone. You know, it clearly comes in all different shapes and sizes. But I do believe Gary's special is for anyone who wants to feel less alone who wants a different perspective, or, you know, just wants to laugh. If you're in that camp, which I think technically, if you're listening to the show, you just have to be based on the definition of anyone, then uh, I suggest you seek out The Great Depression. It's currently available to stream for free uh, right now on YouTube and will continue to be available on HBO. So, without further ado... Here is Gary Goldman. Gary Goldman? Yes. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Sam. How are you feeling? I feel good. Yeah? Yeah. I, I watched your special this morning. Oh, thank you. It's intermittently traumatizing for me to to, to watch it. Really? Um, yeah. Why? Well, because I was um, a ninety percent free throw shooter as a kid. <laughs> oh, well played, um, Sam. So <laughs> hit close to home. Yeah. Put it like that. Oh my uh, gosh. I want to dive right into this with okay, you. Okay, sure. Um, um, the similarities in our lives uh, are uh, unsettling, and we'll get to them. Okay. Um, but something that struck me uh, in in the beginning. You do magic at age seven. Yes. And uh, you're performing for your 
family, sure. mainly your two older brothers. Yeah. And in the process of you trying to do a magic trick, yes, they start poking holes at the inner workings of oh, this Oh, sure. Trick. Yeah. Revealing the tricks. Yes. I, I'm curious, uh, what did that do to you at an early age? I think that every time I get on stage, I need to tell myself, this is not your family in the audience. Right. They are actually rooting for you and will try not to undo your jokes so that whenever there is a heckler, I'm acting out a response from my childhood 40 years down the road. So you didn't sense that they were supportive? No, I think they were just your typical older brothers who were trying to make everybody laugh and finding flaws and and breaking chops and, and doing what New England teens did with <laughs> every other kid. It 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 makes you very reactive. Mm. I th- I think from an early age when you when you know that you have to come come back with witty rejoinders and and angry missives. So yeah, it it really it builds in you a certain sensibility. What did your mother think? My mother was very similar in that she was such a wise ass that she would often undermine my performances yeah. as well. Yeah, she was a very funny woman and she could be very sarcastic and and very witty. So, yeah, I was I was getting it from all angles. My father, however, would would protect me from them and he was he was sincere and earnest and and really enjoyed really enjoyed me and, and what I had to say. So so that was the saving grace. They separated before you were two. Yes. Yeah. Wow, research. So, so it, like, it's not that it, um, this is a competition, but right. my, my parents split up before I was one. Wow. Um, <laughs> you're, you're winning. So really, who won here, Gary? <laughs> now who's oh, winning? Oh, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was this book I, I heard. That's the last joke I'll do. No, you're really you're really sharp. You've, you're two for two, so please don't stop. But there was there was a book in which the author was interviewed. I haven't read it yet, but I I did download it, which is part of part of reading is it's downloading the, the book. The right I have direction. access to it. I think it's called Dandelions and Orchids, and they were talking about what happens to a child when there's trauma when they're in the womb, mm-hmm. and and I think our ninety percent. Plus, free throw shooting is is a product of that. I was wondering, do you remember the time or a time in your childhood when you were a kid and you went to school and you were like, you know, there's something different about my family dynamic. From the from the very beginning, I I knew that my family was was very different in that there was only a mom at home and and kids. It was it was interesting because there was an assumption made that you had two parents, so. I remember a friend saying to me when I was in Little League that I should wear one of my father's shirts underneath my uniform to collect the sweat or something like that. <laughs> and and I remember thinking, yeah, I'd have to go to his house a half hour drive away yeah. to, There's to a commute. get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't just go do yeah. this. Yeah. So, that, so it was just assumed that you had a, a two-parent household and... I pretty much kept it to myself until fifth grade when I met a friend. He just wasn't embarrassed by the fact that he 
that he had a stepfather and that he had another father and he just was mm. completely open about it and i remember thinking wow this guy is is really bold and taking some some big chances here by revealing these family secrets you felt embarrassed i was embarrassed i was i was ashamed and i would i would lie about it and keep it to myself and and make up stories and and it was very yeah to this day i really resent having to lie about anything no matter how small i just feel like oh this is it takes a lot of it takes a lot of energy and and a lot of cases it was it was a result of of shame yeah you're not uh someone who can just throw the lie away and, and move on no it it you know there's that i think that's a good quality yeah there's that philosopher emmanuel kant who who said you should never lie under any circumstances. And, and I remember learning about him freshman year of college, and I, I'm so obsessed with, with World War II that I said, but what about if you're hiding Jews? <laughs> and the, I remember the professor saying something to the effect of, funny you should ask, that is one of the main things that Immanuel Kant was, was challenged about. And he said, even, even under those circumstances, you shouldn't lie. And, and mm. then I was finished with Kant after that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the yeah. straw. If that there's broke. ever the one chance that lying is good, it's, it's when you're hiding anyone, I think. <clears throat> Never mind Jews. Because I'm a Jew, so I was particularly concerned. No, about I'm aware the, of that. The, yeah. Jew, the Jew hiding policy of Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Yeah, look, someone had to poke the hole. Yeah. And someone uniquely qualified. <laughs> yes. Especially at a Catholic university. Yes. Yeah. Um, on uh, you growing up in a Jewish yes. household, um, something really fascinating about your special is that you, you go back to your home in, in Peabody, Massachusetts. Yes. And there's this moment very early on, I think maybe on the eight or nine minute mark. Uh huh. 12 or 13 minute mark. Okay. <laughs> this is how my brain. This yeah. Is I'm the same way. Insane person. Just second um, guess myself yeah, all yeah. day long. No, no, yeah. it's a disaster. So yes. um, you go back home and, and you open up uh, a photo album with your mother, Barbara. Yes. And you look through photos and then you pull out um, a short story called The Lonely Tree. Yes. Which she is at once um, happy to see, but also mystified by. Right. Uh, I think the way you present it is very much uh, like Alvy Singer, Annie Hall, like the mother. <laughs> wow, that's the, really the, insightful. The mother being like, he was so happy, but then yes. sadness came, but I don't know why. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something you read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It won't be expanding for billions of years yet, Alvie. And we've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here, huh? Huh? <laughs> you present it as a bit because she is still um in denial in yeah. denial about it so, yes. so what is that like right now it's a little bit frustrating but also just to hear her describe my most recent depression and and my life since college for instance her her recollection is is not great it's 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 
like Rashomon, where she's just giving a completely different yeah. story than, Does she like than that film? what I have. <laughs> I don't know. She's a big Kurosawa fan. <laughs> what she would say was, well, this is different. Yeah. She'll never say she hated something. She says, well, that was different. So she's polite about other people's work, just yes. not about yours. It's <laughs> just not about mine. <laughs> she's... Yeah, she's but I take it personally if somebody doesn't like something that I like, so she's at least sensitive about that. But yeah, she, I mean, I have tattoos on my hands that she just won't acknowledge. I could smoke a cigarette. I used to smoke cigarettes like a fiend mm -hmm. and she's seen me smoke cigarettes and would tell you that I never smoked. Yeah. When I told her I had quit smoking 10 years ago, oh, Gary, she said, my but you, son? yeah, my, my Gary never smoked. And, and she would stand by that. So her recollection is not very accurate. But also, I, I think the other thing that the, the filmmakers were, were excellent at was having my mother stand in sort of for, for America, that most of us back in the 1970s had no idea what, what depression and, and, some of the more common forms of mental illness, what right. they what they entailed and what the symptoms were and, and how serious they were and, and how much they they affected people's lives and and moods and families. Yeah, you describe that time, um, you know, you're born in seventy and you're a teenager uh in the eighties. Right. And you describe the, the the constructs of masculinity in two ways, which is that you're either Clint Eastwood or Richard Simmons. Yes. And I think this contributes to what the conversation around mental stability sure i think those two men are, are probably not <laughs> great you know right they're not great examples of, of yeah. either group yeah did you sense yourself being confused as a teenager definitely i th i think that there was there were my mood issues but also i like you're saying i i didn't fit into the accepted form of a man which is aggressive and, and tough and strong and never cries and, and doesn't whine about anything, never complains about anything and really enjoys contact sports. Mm -hmm. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't there. I, I enjoyed basketball primarily because of the, the no contact aspect of it. But then you, you, start playing basketball a lot and and coaches see a big guy and and especially back then a finesse game was was derided and and it wasn't okay with my coaches <laughs> they wanted me to push people around and and really go for rebounds and and they didn't care that I could mm. shoot jumpers from 20 feet for for hours so when you're pulled to to be a tight end yes uh, uh, in high school playing right. football yes um you're smiling at me now because it's such an interesting story that I didn't know was so interesting to people until I told it on on This American Life. Yeah, I think it yeah. is interesting. But but there's um, a question I have, which is, you didn't want to play, right? You knew you didn't want to play. Yeah, and yet you did play, right? Did you ever feel that you could just say, "Yeah, I don't want to do this"? Well, I think more than. I didn't want to play football. I wanted to be accepted by men, and I wanted to be accepted by people who were referred to as a, a, a guy's guy or a man's man. I remember my family would comment on certain little boys in the in our life, relatives and neighbors. They'd say, "Oh, he's all boy. He's all boy." And and I remember thinking to myself, either either I'm not 
all boy or they at least don't think I'm all boy because I've never heard that said about me. Yeah. And also I have this enormous stuffed animal collection and I really enjoy crafting and 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 I cry at movies and after school specials and and even even cartoons. I mean I, I really remember one time really disappointing a, a neighborhood friend of mine and him calling me a sissy and it just oh it, it crushed me because I because I felt he was he was right. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it really hurt because I, I was I was really soft. Was your father a man's man or Oh my gosh. Boy's yes. Boy? Yes. I mean he was in the Navy and he was a boxer and he grew up in the in the Bronx and he had a lot of stories about getting into fights and losing fights and winning mm. fights and, and so he was I mean he the other side is that maybe he was maybe he was covering up some some feelings that, of his own that he wasn't a, a man's man because he was telling the, all these stories about getting into fights. But I, I definitely saw him as the as the the model for what a for a man was, which is which is normal for a kid to see that in his in his dad. Since he didn't live with you, what was your dynamic like with him? Well, for a while there, I used to say that. My mother would have me for six days, and then my mother, my father would come over on Sunday and try to undo everything my my mother had had done. So, my father would make sure that my fingernails were clean, and that I had gotten a good night's sleep, and that I had eaten a good breakfast, and that I was doing my homework, and that I was behaving, and that I wasn't. <laughs> That I wasn't a conduct problem in in school, so it was just it was it was ridiculous. I would have this strict father for four or five hours on a Sunday, and then I would have this this very uninvolved. I wouldn't call it neglect, but I was. I think I've heard people refer to seventies kids as sort of free range kids. I, I just could go anywhere I wanted, and there was no there was no curfew. There was mm-hmm. there was no you have to be home, and and every meal was was served in in front of the television. There was no sitting down to dinner. Or I used to, I remember used to watch I used to watch the Brady Bunch, in which they would sit down at dinner together, and one of them would want to leave before dinner was over and asked if they could be excused. And it was like that that type of lifestyle wasn't familiar to me at all. You said that you used to say that, that that was the dynamic. You said, I used to say... Yeah, well, when I was growing up, that's how I would I would. Do you think it's still it. true now? I think that I give my father credit for mellowing over the years and, and becoming more regular and... and and gentle in his in his treatment of me that that he he wasn't as as strict as I got older and I could I could say things that were a little bit more irreverent than when I was a a little kid and and we actually enjoyed our our time it was because my brothers grew up they were older than me and so they they left the house and for for most of my childhood it was just my father and I on mm-hmm. Sundays and we would play basketball and watch games and throw throw the baseball around throw the football around and 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 so that there there were he was he was a very warm and, and affectionate man but he he wanted to to be a strict father and and I think eventually he realized that one I didn't need to be handled in that in that way because I was very well behaved and a, and a, and a good boy and the, the other thing was it was that why are you laughing at that 
because it's it's just a more interesting story, especially for a comedian is is kind of a, a wild child or or a kid who misbehaved or was a smart aleck or something like that. But I was at least with my dad and around the house, I was I was really I, I behaved and I was good and I never got into mischief or 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 got into trouble. I mean, I was I was very talkative in in school. And that that could be a problem with certain teachers, but for the most part, I was I was considered a, a well-behaved kid and a, a good student. Mm. I think that carried over, though, right? I mean, I mean, you prided yourself for many years working as a, as a clean act. Yeah. Do you see that connection? Does that feel well? I the connection I think is that I didn't feel comfortable swearing and and talking about about personal ideas and sex and things in my in my house it was it wasn't it wasn't tolerated and so there was a a squeamishness probably that I brought to it as I as I got older and then when I got into comedy I noticed that I did have a, a time when I would swear a bit and I would talk about about more adult topics but then i realized that there were comedians who were who were going much further and were much more mm -hmm. honest and, and maybe and, more equipped to do yeah that. and and didn't have and and had the stomach for it and and could keep pushing the boundaries further and further and crossing the line and i just i i i always was looking for a way to stand out and i i knew that that direction i i was going to have to compromise my my personality to stand out because it just it just wasn't in me and it, it didn't come naturally to me well something uh th that you reminded me of is that in in february of 1989 yes um a coach from the university of boston comes to your home boston college boston college comes to yes. your home and uh, offers you a scholarship to play football right in the special uh, you admit that at that point in your senior year, you had not applied to any other schools. Right. Uh, in large part because you feared the personal essay section. Yes, yes. Why do you think you were uncomfortable writing about yourself at that age? I don't know that there was there was discomfort over writing about myself because I, I, I do remember some essays I wrote for school that were due, and so I, I wrote them, and... I it it all depended on what my depression was doing at the at the time. So senior year I was anxious about football and overwhelmed by the idea of leaving home and and going to college and the, on top of that the applying to the colleges and then having to write this essay which is pretty much homework I just I just put it off and and put it off and and so i think it was probably a combination of 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 not having the energy to do it and then building it up in my head that this was so important and just putting it off became much easier than than facing it so you took the scholarship yeah i took the scholarship yes yes and i remember they did tell me that i needed to to fill out the application but as long as i didn't put na 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 i'm in they would they would accept me so yeah, it was pretty easy. In that transition, uh, 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 the summer going into school, yeah, you put on weight, yeah, uh, to play to play and, football. And, but, yeah. but also, once again, you know the entire time that you don't really want to do this, right? And yet, 
I I thought about that, and, and it made me think. If you if you put on weight, was there some part of you that thought you could talk yourself into doing it? No, certainly. And and part of me had talked myself into it. I had trained and thought, well, maybe this will be, maybe this will be different for some reason. Maybe I'll be aggressive for the first time. And and there were, there was a constant referendum on my on my manhood every afternoon at practice. And I would try to psych myself up, and and then I how I would just you psych yourself up? Well, I would just say to myself, all right, put your head into this and, and grit your teeth and 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 be a man. <laughs> I would think things like that to myself. And, and you are, are you laughing because it's silly? Yeah, because it's so silly. Don't be yourself. Don't be yourself every afternoon for months. And yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I got through it because I, I made a few friends on the, on the team and the alternative I couldn't tolerate. And, and also I had a great therapist. Every week I had a guy who would help me get through it. It sounds exhausting. Oh my gosh, it was it was exhausting. But it was also difficult after I quit to try and find my way in in college because at least I had this answer to do you play a sport being so big? Are you playing sports? And I always heard that and to this day hear that as are you, are you a man? Are you a man? And it's only it's so it's disappointing to me that while most of me thought it didn't matter, up until that This American Life episode, I've really not not faced it and and thought about it and and that question? Yeah, that that whether I played a sport and was physically aggressive and tough, whether that mattered to to the idea of, of manhood and and it's just an and I think I'm not the only one who's coming to terms with that. I think I think America is coming to terms with that. What do you mean by that? That just the the definition of of manhood and and the the idea that men behave in a certain way and and you're less of a man if you're if you're passive and you're less of a man if you don't play a contact sport and mm -hmm. real men do this and and I heard Dave Chappelle on stage saying that there are no real men left and and I thought that was such an absurd claim that there are no real men left there were real men back then there are real men now there there are very impressive figures out there who are who are real men and they've never thrown a punch in their life and well they've never I, played in a football game but I think part of his uh, shtick is pulling punches. Yeah, I mean that—that that is a, a lot of what Chappelle does. Yeah, um, and oftentimes to create success. I mean, I think he's brilliant. No, there's no doubt that he's that he's brilliant. Sure. I don't know. So much of your comedy is not based on uh, attacking those kind of larger cultural ideas, except for manhood in this most recent right. special. It does seem to start inward for you. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I I I think I'm I'm most comfortable in in addressing the the world through my perspective, and I I I think that the the reason why you are connecting with it because I I think that the personal is it's Emerson. The personal is is universal. Mm. That, that the, these are experiences that with this many people around, more than one person is going to feel the the similar feelings and and experience the world in a, in a similar 
way. And I just, I feel most comfortable telling stories from, from my point of view and my experience. And I, I didn't, I didn't address any of my, my ideas of, of manhood and masculinity until now, because I think it was, I think it was a component of my, of my depression. I think the accepting myself was, was an important step in, in, in feeling better and and not being, because we talked about this earlier about shame mm. and about lying and, and I lied about being in the hospital. I lied about having depression. I never told my college girlfriend who I was, she was like family. I never told her that I took antidepressants. I only told her my senior year that I even saw a therapist. So these were things that I was covering up and, and lying about and making up stories because I was ashamed. And I, I got some really insightful advice from my current therapist a long time ago, and I didn't really apply it until recently, which was that if everybody knows everything about you, if you're an open book, then they have no, they have nothing to hold over you. They, right. they, they, they can't blackmail you with that, anything if you're an open book. So well, that's I, the I, premise I, of this podcast. So. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you find the shame to be useful in any way? It made everybody else more comfortable. Nobody, nobody. What wants is that to... based on, though? Well, how, how did you gauge comfort within oh, right, the room? Right. Or did you take a, a poll and you're like, "Are you more comfortable? Are you more comfortable?" Well, I just know that I have heard certain friends talk about one particular friend who is mentally ill, and it wasn't very favorable, and they they were they were exhausted by him and avoided him and I thought well I don't want to be that guy I'll let out a little bit of information but I, I remember in high school when I had a very difficult time and I was dwelling on on certain things and and I was told pretty explicitly by a friend that it was getting it was getting tiresome to have to hear me dwell on this this subject over and over again and and so I didn't imagine how you felt right Oh, I know. And I, I just, I didn't have a gauge on how that was just one friend. There were probably other friends who would have listened and and there are friends now who will, who will listen. And I have a, a close friend, two close friends, one in, from fifth grade, one from sixth grade, who I realize now I can sit there and talk all night and they'll, they'll listen and I'll never get tired of it. Yeah. But, but I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to take the chance and I, and I took the, I took the lead from my family, but as well as as America, in that my family, my father's mother, so my maternal, my paternal grandmother, spent a lot of time in a in a mental institution. She was what we diagnose as bipolar. They used to call it manic depression, mm. and they didn't really have very effective treatment for it. And I think she was over medicated, and and she was sort of a a a, a tragedy in the family. And there was some some. I wouldn't call it shame, but it wasn't something that my father was comfortable letting letting people know. And and I think we were occasionally a story would come out about her, and my my father would 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 cut it off pretty much. She was a very sick woman, and we feel sorry for her. And then and then that's it. So there was no, there certainly was no lightness over it. And mm -hmm. and 
while I didn't go out there trying to lighten the mood about about depression and mental illness, I, I think it's it, it's interesting that that that's what I wound up doing out of necessity, not because I saw the way my grandmother was was treated. I have to be honest with you; I didn't feel comfortable being around my grandmother because she was just she seemed out of it and she wasn't very very warm and 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 I'm not I'm not sure she knew anything about me. Yeah. What did your father it. make of your sickness? Oh, he felt terrible. He felt terrible. And he was really supportive and and I could call him and I often did call him crying and he would talk me through it and and he was really great when I was a, a kid at talking me down from from anxiety and and figuring things out and logically going through things. He was very gentle and and patient that way. And and he had a similar approach as an as an adult, but it was just it was so much more complicated when I was an adult. It, there was there wasn't the same my father's going to to take care of me type of feeling. So that was that was interesting that that I was I was the one who was going to have to live with this. But my my father would listen for as long as I I needed to to talk. He he was really something. Isn't it fascinating when you realize? Oh, they can only help so much. Right. Yes. There's, oh my gosh. There's a limit to right. that. Yeah. There's not like an endless yeah. bandwidth that they have. Right. I know. And then you have I to know. sit there and be like, oh, but he was the yeah, but he was the type of father who I I have no doubt that he would have that he would have absorbed all my pain to make mine go away. He mm. was he was something else in that way. It seems like there's a there's a some kind of transformation that happens between uh, how your father treated you as a kid uh-huh. versus how he treated you as an adult. Like it seems like he changed and his perspective changed. Definitely. Is that true? Yeah. I think he I think he did change and everybody in my family would say that my father mellowed over the years. He he found a, a, a great second wife who was who was a, a lot warmer and more gentle than than maybe his his personality was was I don't know. Because my mother was warm and and gentle, but maybe it was just the timing of this mm. this second wife. But he he really he really mellowed, and I think, and maybe it was just his age. He was getting into his fifties and then and then sixties. But I I also think that that perhaps he became more himself in the in the same way that I've become more or more comfortable being my myself. Oh, you know, so, some clear parallels that I saw in your special uh, this morning. Uh huh. Uh, is 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 with definitely Gary Shandling, you know. Oh wow, yes. Where where you where you see him do his show in the you know it's Gary Shandling show in the late eighties and it and right. doesn't really work and, and for a variety of reasons he then does you know Larry Sanders show after rejecting taking over Carson Spot right and late night stuff right and that seems to be his first um, honest and vulnerable expression of his own insecurities and, yes. and, and outright narcissism. Yes. That ends and he undergoes what I think people describe as a spiritual transformation. I don't want to be sure. unfair to, to what he did or yeah. what happened to him. I don't ever think we got to see it fully. And by it, I mean whatever he became after his show and after the disastrous Mike Nichols film. Right. It, it remi- you reminded me of him. Oh, that's interesting. In that, I mean, you got he's 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 um, much different than yeah. you in a lot of ways. But right. There seems to be a an interest in describing 
uh, and reflecting on therapy and lessons learned and some sort of transformation. That's very interesting. Gary Shandling was the first comedian I ever saw alive. For my bar mitzvah, my mom took me to see the Johnny Carson show. She snuck me in because you had to be at least 16 years old to get in. And I was very tall, and she she sort of strong-armed a page who, who asked what my age was. And I saw Gary Shandling. The lead guest was was Carrie Fisher, who was was Princess Leia. And, and I knew who she was, and I loved Star Wars, but I was I was immediately taken by by Gary Shandling and I, I my my first favorite comedian was was David Brenner because I, I loved his his observational humor and I really connected with him and I, I thought it was just magic and then Gary Shandling rose up to that to that level he, you never unseat your favorite comedian but Gary Shandling I connected with because he was he was one of the first comedians who was open about his feelings of insecurity and his feelings of 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 being moody and and being open about being a, a Jewish man and and not that tough and I really I really connected with him very very quickly and so when when you say that that it remind you of Gary Shandling that that's that's probably not an accident mm. yeah. yeah he was very open about not being tough yeah yeah, just just, and I'm sure Woody Allen did that before, and other comedians did that before. But just acknowledging that you are a coward, so brave. But coward feels almost too negative. Yeah, but I mean, you can that, be negative. You can say right, 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 right. But that's but that's how I interpreted. I'm to stop you from being negative, right? Here. But that's how I interpreted certain stand-up admissions that you were not. Like I remember, he had this joke. I don't, I don't know where or when I saw it, but he said that the the woman moved in with another guy, and so he b- broke up with her. And it's like I, I, I couldn't have been more than eleven years old, probably. And I remember thinking to myself, Yeah, that'll probably happen to me. I'll probably, I'll probably be on that end of a of a relationship. I, I, I am in awe of guys who feel comfortable around around girls. When I was eleven or twelve, I just they made me very nervous. Yeah. What has your relationship to women been? Well, I wish there was somebody in my life who could have told me when I was 11 or 12 that there was no doubt in their mind that I would eventually uh, kiss a girl and that a, a woman would would love me eventually because mm-hmm. I was convinced that I'd never have a never have a girlfriend and and the indifference I have now to a naked woman in my apartment I couldn't I couldn't have envisioned when I was 11 or 12 my my wife can walk around in a towel and at no point do I giggle or or feel feel uncomfortable right. I, I, How I come just feel these... like this this thing is <laughs> something that happens in my life and, and I'm used to it if only middle school teachers spoke of the indifference that would come <laughs> they'd be, they'd be so much better I don't, right I, I don't mean to say I don't find her beautiful and attractive, but, it, no, but you're absolutely indifferent. Yeah, so she's almost so apathetic, right? So you're in a you're in a, a towel, and this happens all the time. So this is kind of obvious, but why did you think you weren't going to kiss somebody? Why did you feel like you weren't going to be loved? Where does that come from? Oh, I don't know. I just I just I found myself very unattractive and I got teased sometimes as every kid mm-hmm. in my generation got teased by kids and and what about the height thing that's that usually does enough of the legwork 
for people. My my height was not proportional, I guess, early on. I was very very skinny, and and my features were were pronounced, and and I didn't have a sister or or somebody in my life who said, "Hey, that that wisp of a mustache, you might want to you might want to clean that up, shave that, yeah. un, until it comes in." A little thicker because you you just you say that as you look at my mustache. Well, you have a great mustache, yeah. And my and family's it against came, it, really. But yeah. it came in beautifully. Thanks. I mean, mine was just. And by the way, the 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 support I was looking for is you. <laughs> you don't care. God bless you. <laughs> oh, Sam, what a delightful afternoon. Well, we we have only a little bit more to go. Okay, and then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> But but I feel I'm hoping we'll keep in touch. I hope because so too. I I see a lot of younger me in in you just physically. No, yeah, we, we have we have great hair and and a nice smile and and yeah. I don't think you mean just physically, right? Yeah. The, the, well, just the fact that you told me that you connected with my <laughs> with my free throw shooting ability <laughs> tells me everything I need to know. Oh man, I love playing. Um, <laughs> I really do. Uh, you know, people who are as funny as you, usually when asked questions that are um, emotionally driven or, or require some bit of honesty, lead with a joke. Oh, really? Before answering honestly. Oh, that's interesting. We've have we've had a many uh, you know a lot yeah. of comedians come in and they do right. That. Well, the thing is, is that I I love the podcast format and yeah. I I love therapy. So, and also I feel that. The podcasts I've done where I've been this this version of me, people enjoy more and connect better with and 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 so I'm I'm I lean towards this. Mm. Yeah. Oh I'm I'm glad to hear that. And yeah. I, I think it is helpful for people to hear other people honestly. Yeah. Um it's easier said than done. Okay, good. But but I I, I thank I, you. I, I I will say though, on the special uh-huh when you are describing uh, the moment where you hit uh, rock bottom, right? You you bring in uh, the ice cream to, to sort of like gently oh, guide of course. us, there, yes. which was which yes. is a good move. Everyone likes yes. ice cream. It's the Mary Poppins, yeah. Spoonful of sugar, yes. Yeah, I didn't need to qualify that for you. No, no, no. Yeah. I think people want to hear the Mary Poppins Clarify. reference. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, "What is that?" Oh, yeah, Mary yeah, Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> And yet, yeah. uh, the, the the naked truth of it is in the special. And you say that in in the bottom of your depression, you were convinced that you weren't going to get better. Yes. And I was hopeless. You were hopeless. Yes. And, and your partner said, so was I. Right. How do you think you did get through it? Well, there were probably 20 things, but I think... There was a level that I lived at for a long time and I became comfortable in, which was just, I don't feel great. I don't look forward to doing much. And I don't think I'm that special or talented and, and just running myself down a lot. But I can get out of bed. I can go to work. I can make the meetings. I can make the flights. And I can talk on stage and nobody would know that I was I was sick. And medicine and electroconvulsive therapy got me to that level again because I was far below that. And that got me to that level again where adding exercise and therapy 
and some wisdom that I had accumulated and some friends and recognizing the value of my relationship and 15 other things, cutting out sugar, got me to a level where I'm, I'm not just getting by and, and making a living, but I'm, I'm thriving and I've, I've never been happier or more accepting of myself and, and had more energy to do things beyond just get to the show and do an hour of comedy and then return immediately to the hotel and, and try to sleep. Mm. I think people at home listening will be like, oh, ECT, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you you demystify it a little bit in the special and, and, I hope and so. tell people it's not one flew over the cuckoo's No, it's not. Before you underwent that that, that process, do you remember that the, the 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 days before that when you had accepted that you were going to undergo ECT? Sure, I felt hopeful. I felt that the people who were who I trusted in my life, my psychiatrist and a, and a very good friend named Amy Koppelman, who's an author and and screenwriter. She said, and I mentioned this in the special, you've got four years left to live. This, is that Amy? Yeah. Got it. This, this treatment works. It's, she used the expression gold standard and you, you need it because we're all worried about your, your life and you, you need to do this and it, and it works. And I watched a, a really good TED talk of a of a surgeon who had received ECT and it it saved his life and my doctor was was very knowledgeable about it and an advocate and had done it and yet there are still people who who think of it as the one flew of the cuckoo's nest mm. treatment and that the side effects aren't worth it and it's dangerous and it's ineffective and it knocked out my anxiety which was crippling in in three treatments and the People talk about the memory loss, but the worst memory loss was was from being depressed. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will will tell you that they can't remember months and years when they were depressed and and anxious, and and that was my experiences as well. Doctors call it faux dementia depression. So, the cognitive effects of of depression are something that go underreported, and and people are are uninformed about that, but they're, they're significant and they made it so that I couldn't write for years. Were you afraid you wouldn't be yourself after that? I was more afraid that I wasn't going to be a, a, alive anymore. So it became a, a, a trade-off and, and I was, I wasn't happy to give up the life I, I had before I got really sick because that was a possibility. Maybe you won't be able to do stand up if the worst occurs, but it, it, didn't and I, and I don't think that I'm I'm some unique miracle case. Mm. This may sound silly, but sure. Do you think you're meant to do stand up? I don't know that I was meant to do stand up, but I think it's the ultimate manifestation of my gifts. <laughs> my my gifts for 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 solving certain logic puzzles. That sounds and, Catholic almost. And connections, <laughs> does it? That's interesting. I just uh, to to me it it. It was this thing that I was obsessed with in a, in a good way that I always wanted to watch the comedians and I always wanted to listen to the albums. And then I also love the feeling I get when people are laughing at something I thought of. Mm. So, yeah. You know, uh, that, that time of having some kind of amnesia or, or uh, where you couldn't remember 
that period of, of right depression. Yeah. Uh, your partner, Sade. Yes. Not the singer. Right. Yes. I almost made the mistake. Oh, was, Conan did the other night too. Really? Yeah. Well, it's not like he has people on staff <laughs> doing research for him. <laughs> right. Or, but he had also met Sade, but maybe he was just trying to be funny, but he said, uh, the Sade and you were depressed. Maybe married to the Sade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, it's good. It's a good joke. It was really funny. You know, no one ever says this. He's funny. <laughs> He's so funny. <laughs> but she remembers uh, that bleak period. Yes. I think it sounds like painfully yeah. well. Yeah. What does that do for you two? How does that affect your dynamic? I'm so grateful for her because what what isn't clear from the special is we had only been dating for like six months. Oh when, my God. When this, when this illness came about. This person deserves a goddamn medal. Right? She's a saint. I don't know and, how you got and so lucky. could have and could have six months. Yeah, could have run away. And I would say during the during this two and a half year bout, why have you stayed? And she said, "Well, it was a really special six months." And wow, and that made me really, really happy. And and I I must say that I, at least from my experience, it was really special. I mean, we we connected on a on a very deep level, and we had so much fun, and and we really enjoyed each other's company and then the bottom fell out so the dynamic of having her go through it the the one thing i i just learned so much about about her character and her strength and also the idea that she was there to she wasn't there to but she looked out for me and she was careful about my about my recovery and and when when we started to develop this for for HBO. She was she was outspoken in talking to my manager and and my director that we take this slowly because the the recovery is is fragile and and we don't want to put too much too soon and overwhelm my my brain too quickly and and but they were really careful in in being patient and and making it making it i i would say that there was there was one moment where she said maybe we're rushing this maybe we're rushing this and and i i shared that with everybody in, involved and we we took a step back and and we sort of analyzed the idea that okay if if HBO or everyone says no, then I will I will survive. I will be able to accept that. I'll be sad. I'll be disappointed. But the the live show will have helped some people, and and that and that I felt would be enough, and and I could be I could be satisfied and and grateful for that. Mm. What do you think it is about her that makes her special as a partner? One thing that I that I had noticed is is that a, a lot of women not just in my life but just in in america are are very concerned about the the size of their diamond and and just the 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 existence of their diamond that they wanted a diamond for an engagement and and i said why do you not want a diamond it's it's usually a and and it might be just that song, "Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend." But why don't you want a diamond engagement ring? She said, it's "Probably not just that." <laughs> she said, "Because I'm not a basic bitch." 
<laughs> and I thought, I thought, well, it doesn't make you a basic bitch if you did want a diamond. But I, I thought that was really funny, and it, and it made me, it made me laugh. But um, yeah, we didn't get a, a diamond engagement ring, and that that's one thing that makes her special. But also, she's 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 a real intellectual and an ad, advocate. For, for many different social issues and she's an activist and she's an incredibly well-read and informed and, and just has has an allegiance to uh, uh, an integrity and, a, and an ethic and a morality that I, that I think is is uncommon and, and so attractive to me. Mm. You, you say in the special that uh, you were convinced you're not going to get better. Yeah. And yet you're here yes. with me right now. Yeah. And you have gotten better. Yeah. When you look back on, on your life and your character, do you think there's something in you that won't let you quit? I do. And and it brings to mind a Camus quote that I'll paraphrase because I can't remember it exactly. But Actually, can you directly quote it? I have it. I have it on a bracelet and I should have it memorized by now, but... It's something about in the in the depth of my winter, I realized that within me I have an infinite summer. And I really, I think there is something about me. But I also think the human spirit is, is so strong and the will to live is, is so strong. And, but I also had great cheerleaders and, and great coaches in, in my life who, who helped me to, to persevere. But I, I do think I have an inner, an inner strength to get through these to get through these things. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really nice compliment. I, I appreciate that. Well, someone smart said that uh, the thing about life they don't tell you is that it's every day. <laughs> someone smart. Oh, Sam. And I want to thank you, uh, Gary, for, for coming here on this day and uh, in this moment to sit with a stranger. Well, it was a pleasure. And, and we're time. not strangers anymore. Gary and Goldman. Hopefully we'll stay in touch. Let's do it. All right, thanks, Sam. Special thanks this week to Andrew Bloom and the team at Rogers and Cohen. Without them, this episode would not have happened. I also want to give a special thanks to Gary Goleman. His new special, The Great Depression, is currently available to stream on HBO. If you'd like to learn more about Gary, you can do so at our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of episodes with folks uh, all throughout comedy, including Whitney Cummings, Jeff Garland, Wyatt Cenac, Scott Ackerman, Mary Holland, Chris Elliott, Paul F. Tompkins, Eric Andre, Ben Schwartz, Jenny Slate. I'm leaving some people out, but uh, many wonderful folks have come on. And uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, I imagine you'll enjoy some of those. Our show can be streamed on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. If you'd like to consider donating to the show, uh, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash donate as always this podcast is executive produced by david chen graphics by ian jones designed by ian chang illustrations by krishna shenoy 
Our social media is by Nikki Spina. Our intern is Ghani Zur. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Highland Park. Our associate producer is Caroline Reebok. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you back here next Sunday uh, with someone very, very special. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.